0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: When I was a kid, sometimes when my father would come home from work, he and I would walk down to the corner grocery store, not to buy groceries now, but to pick up any litter that was in the parking lot. Man, I hated doing that. What if my friends saw me picking up trash on the corner? Can you imagine the jokes? So dad would pick up this trash with this long broomstick, had a nail on the end of it. He put it into this garbage bag that I was holding. And at some point I asked my mother, is this dad's part-time job? She said he was just trying to beautify the neighborhood, just trying to clean up a bit, wanted the place where we lived to be beautiful. And I think my father was on to something. That's something that any of us can do whether it's in our personal or professional lives. My artistic neighborhood is classical music. I walk the streets of classical music every day. And we all know that classical music in America isn't the most inclusive of art forms. So in this podcast, we're going to try and create something more inclusive, something more beautiful for all of us. We'll share some stories and perspectives and music that has gone unnoticed will experience the beauty of our diversity and the sameness of our humanity in this podcast. This is every voice with me, Terrence McKnight. Many cultures, many voices, one people. In this series, we're going to look at representations of blackness in opera. It's an art form that's more than 400 years old. And it hasn't always been kind to people of my background. But before we get into that, I want to introduce you to Dr. Sharon Willis. She's an African-American composer who lives in Atlanta. And her stories are positively Black and positively captivating. Many of her operas are inspired by real-life historical figures.
2: I was in bed one night and I heard this story on PBS. And they were talking about this Black man on the Titanic. Well, I'm in twilight sleep, so I'm thinking that maybe I'm dreaming. This must be two o'clock in the morning. And I said, let me let me let me wake up. And they kept saying La Roche. Joseph LaRoche. And when I heard that, I said, I'm gonna look that up. That that that's just too incredible. I look up the name, I remember La Roche. And Joseph Philippe Le Mercier La Roche. And when I looked him up, there's this black man with fro. <laughs> and he's married to a French woman, white, and two little children with curly hair. And when I see that story, I'm saying opera, opera, story, opera. When I wrote
1: and when opera, she composed the La Roche Opera, I was sure to be there. I've seen several of her operas. Dr. Willis has written sixteen operas, and she often tells the stories of very successful African Americans. People love hearing these stories. They were relevant. Relatable. Plus, the music was always wonderful with just the right amount of familiarity. People would leave the theater asking about, when's the next production? This is music from her opera, Madam C.J., about the philanthropist and activist Madam C.J. Walker, who in the early 20th century became one of the first black millionaires by creating hair products for black women.
3: Got to move on. Although I'm feeling so blue Yes, I do Got to move on Although I'm feeling blue Got so much ahead Got so much more to do
2: The response I that audience members have given me have been very positive. Many of them had to be coerced by their neighbors or people who knew me to say, I'm coming to an opera. I don't want to come to an opera because first of all, they're going to be singing in a language that I don't understand and they're going to be and that does not mean anything to me.
1: Outside of Atlanta, not many people know about Sharon Willis's operas. They weren't commissioned or performed by the big opera houses around the country. Those opera houses remain largely committed to performing works that were composed in Europe, based in Europe, or informed by white European perspectives. The few times black characters appear in those operas, the portrayals are outdated, offensive. It makes you think about what kind of culture, whose culture those big opera companies are promoting. So I was introduced to Sharon Willis's operas during my student days at Morehouse. That was a place where it was acceptable and respectable for Black men to engage in classical music. Morehouse is the only college in the country devoted to educating Black men. So my alma mater is the perfect place for us to begin this exploration of old and new representations of Blackness in opera. Let's go this way. It was a quiet day when we got to the music department. I was there with David Norville. He's one of the producers of the show. Almost immediately, we ran into Dr. David Morrow, who was the director of the Glee Club. How you doing, man? What can I find, Dr. Morrow? Dr. Morrow? Oh, right in front of me, huh? Yeah. Hey, Dr. Morrow. I'm Terrence McKnight. V Terrence. Come on. How are you, sir? Things are well? Very well, sir. Good, how are you? i hanging on, <laughs> <laughs> getting ready to go in here and teach one student. <laughs> Who you got? Uh, so one of the music majors doing the Hey. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. All right. So the conduct class. Hello. This is want? Dave Norville. This is Dave Morrow. My pleasure. Good name. <laughs> Good to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. So. Y'all got rehearsal today? We do. 4 o'clock. We're getting ready to go to St. Louis. We to tomorrow um, going to St. Louis to sing for the Black Repertory Ensemble. They have their gala, and they've been featuring HBCU choir. Uh-huh. So I sang in this glee club when I was in school. Some of my closest friends sang in this glee club. We toured the country together. We sang in African and European languages. We sang with orchestras, and we performed at least one opera. Being around all these men who shared my cultural experiences was critical. To me finding comfort and confidence in classical music.
0: Uh,
1: So important to our learning was knowing our history and the history of this glee club. It was founded in 1911, and since that time, it's only had three directors and a number of pretty famous members, like Martin Luther King Jr. This music. Was written for the Glee Club by Dr. Uzi Brown. He's the chairman of the Division of Creative and Performing Arts at the College. Let's go down to his office so we can continue this conversation. Our first Glee Club director in the back. That's right. That's good. Nineteen eleven to four, fifty-three. Mm-hmm. Second Glee Club director in front of him. Fifty-three to eighty-seven. Right. Dave Morrow, eighty-seven till now. We've had three in a hundred ten years. That's right. Yeah.
0: That's why tradition is so strong, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it makes a difference theory from
1: Uzi Brown, a company in his voice studio. And after I got out of graduate school, he brought me back here to teach. It was in his class that I first started paying attention to opera.
0: There is nothing like being able to have historical context to what you do. You know where you come from, you know what you've had the experience to get to wherever you are. Mm -hmm. It's important to have that historical wisdom critical, I think, to being effective at doing the job, especially in a small, historically black college. You
1: know, Dave, when I think about coming back here and the fact that Martin King, King sang in our Glee Club. Mm -hmm. And that-
0: Maynard Jackson.
1: Maynard Jackson. Mm -hmm. And Waylon- A member of the quartet, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Waylon was so connected to the King family, to that church. Dr. Brown connected to that family and to that church. You know, when I graduated, he told me, you know, now that you're graduating, remember that you're representing yourself, your family, Morehouse College, and your people. Yeah. So the work you do, just keep in mind that you're a representation of all those things.
0: It doesn't matter whether you like the idea of, of that level of representation, it's forced upon you. It becomes by mere fact that you have touched those. Things that make you associated or connected in that way is going to connect people to you and that institution and those experiences. Yeah, well, you know, I think, you know,
1: being able to see yourself in someone or being able to see someone as being, you know, possibly brilliant, one has to have open eyes. And the time when Mozart was writing operas, you know, 18th century or Verity in the 19th century, if you consider. Maybe like black folks living in Vienna or in wherever in western europe, there were there weren't a lot of free intellectual black folks who had equal opportunities with the white society. Mm-hmm. and so their understanding of us was sort of limited. You know, we get six, seven hundred students a year that come to this college. Who upperclassmen are looking at, who faculty members are looking at, and who you know see talent in these young men, and think anything is possible. Mm-hmm. You know, our list of graduates is astounding. Some of the accomplishments. Sure. sure. Um, but you have to be able to look someone square in the eye and think, first of all, they're human, and that there's God in them, and that there's possibility in them. And so when I think about what Western Europeans thought about blackness or their only sort of touch point to Blackness may have been visual art or music or theater. So in this story, what I'm looking at is some of those examples of Blackness. You know, when we look at operas, there are some roles that were written for Moors, you know, for Africans, Mm -hmm. for Moors. You know, and one of the operas we wanted to talk about was in Mozart's opera,
0: The Magic Magic Flute. Yeah,
1: yeah. Monastatos. Mm-hmm. And he's actually a more. Um, and oftentimes this figure shows up in costume and he's very dark-skinned. And l- lately, people have been having problems with white singers putting on makeup to become black. But I wanted to get underneath that the sort of the coloring and try to dissect what is it about this character that requires him to have dark skin?
0: Well. There are a number of of different things that I would say about, well, first of all, about that character and that particular opera, but about the world of opera in general. It is not unlike, quite frankly, uh, conditions of the day, of today. You know, you can find many movies that I, I think, you know, though we're getting major breaks in film, a lot of the movies will center around characters that are not very savory in terms of our community. And there is something about what that character looks like in terms of making him seem more evil and and despised than not. So the circumstance of the monocytosis is not necessarily unique in the sense of what white people knew about blacks and how they perceived representing them. And and it is, you know, this is a a vile buffoon-like character. But you have to remember that a lot of the Western European composers played into that kind of scenario, not just in terms of race, but in terms of things that had to do with not only the racial divide, but human imperfection.
1: You're listening to Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: Movies, music, celebrities making bad choices. Crooked Media's weekly podcast, Keep It, has it all. Each week, culture experts Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel unpack the latest controversies, praise character actress appreciation, and share all the gossip in a week. Expect bold and unique queer commentary, award show grievances, and iconic guests like Billy Porter, Michelle Yeoh, Ariana DeBose, and Cheryl Lee Ralph. New episodes of Keep It drop every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Let's get back to our conversation about Monostatos. That more in Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute. Well, Monostatos, in his own mind and from his own lips, he embodies human imperfection, and he tells us why. Here's mezzo-soprano Ryan Bryce Davis talking about her first experience with the magic flute.
3: So the first time I ever encountered magic flute, it was in Texas. And we had an opportunity that all the universities were all getting together to do one big show. And it was in English. And I didn't know anything about the opera at all. And so we had, like, a sing-through. I had gone and just, like, learned all my notes. So I was sitting there happily, like, doo 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 doo, doo. And I remember hearing the character that was singing Monositos, uh, who was, of course, a white gentleman, who was saying, and in English, because my skin is black and ugly, blah-blah-blah-blah-blah. I'm black, I'm ugly, blah-blah. And I was just like... Grrr. And as, like, the only black person in the room, I, like, looked around like, (gasps) is everybody equally appalled? (laughs) And, like, everybody was just pleasantly smiling and looking down at their scores and, like, there's nothing wrong here. And I was like, what the freak is happening?
1: I' <laughs> gotta laugh to keep from crying sometimes. Paul Lawrence Dunbar said it this way: "We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts, we smile. And mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise? and counting all our tears and sighs. Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but O great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but O the clay is vile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. makes monostatos imperfect in this opera was something he has no control over his skin color it also casts him into slavery oh and it gets worse self-loathing monostatos acts out in this opera some of the stereotypes that we've come to despise reject expect Show up year after year around the world in this opera. We're going to talk about it in the next episode. Well, this is Every Voice from WQXR. We interrogate the culture of our classical music and we look at ways to make it beautiful for all of us. I'm Terrence McKnight. I'll see you next time. This episode of Every Voice with Terrence McKnight was produced by David Norville. Our research team includes Arielle Elizabeth Davis, Pranati Diwakar, Ian George, Jasmine Ogeest. This episode, Sound Design and Engineering, is by Sapir Rosenblatt. Our original music was composed by Brother Jeremy Thomas and featured harpist Dr. Ashley Jackson. Our project manager is Natalia Ramirez and our executive producer is Tony Phillips. Elizabeth Nottemaker is the executive producer for WQXR podcasts. And Ed Yim is the chief content officer at WQXR. This project is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts. You can find more information on the web at arts.gov. If you enjoyed this episode, please take the time to rate it and review it and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. We'll see you next time.